right, so uh, some of you may be wondering, why are we looking at Esther? I thought we were studying through Ezra. You remember that the book of Ezra, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, is uh, uh, rather choppy in terms of its chronology. And you would think that all of these things happen in quick succession, but you have to watch very closely because the book gives us dates. And when you follow those dates, you realize that not only do these things not even necessarily happen in order in Ezra, but they are there are big gaps. And the book of Ezra uh, overlaps, if you will, the timeline uh, of various prophets and of the book of Daniel and the book of Esther. Now, Daniel's story really spans from the time of the beginning of the exile through uh, King Cyrus and King Darius Esther's story fits rather neatly between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. Between 6 and 7 in Ezra, there's a gap of about 50 years. And so now we're able to sort of uh, turn back to Babylon. Let's look at the people who stayed behind and what is happening with them. So here's the context. Israel in exile, remember most of the people stayed behind. They spent, sent about 45,000 people off to Jerusalem. Most of the people stayed, stayed behind in the, in the uh, Babylonian, now Persian, Mede Empire. So those people that stay behind essentially send a mission team to Jerusalem to get about the business of rebuilding the temple. And despite some hiccups, despite opposition, despite their own sort of foot dragging and uh, problems that come up and delays that happen, they accomplish their initial mission. They get the temple built. And that's where we left off the story at the end of chapter 6. Now we pivot back to what's happening with all the people who were left behind. Back there, things are about to get ugly. They're about to get ugly. And the big question is, will God remember? The Jews who made this trip to Jerusalem had two prophets speaking to them. We talked a little bit last week about Haggai, but they also had Zechariah. And Zechariah, whose name means God remembers, basically gives them a series of visions, a series of prophecies, all reassuring them that God is with them, that God is for them, that he will protect them, that he will provide for them. And incidentally, he looks forward to a future king and kingdom that will supersede all that they're doing presently. But what about the people back in Persia? What about the people left behind? Will God still remember them? That is the driving question. Esther is really sort of a refreshing break from the more historical books in the Old Testament. You, know, you think of Xerxes calling in his aide to read to him from the Chronicles of the Throne to help put him to sleep. Well, if you read through Kings and Chronicles in the Scripture, th those are also good books for putting you to sleep. For one thing, all of the kings, almost all of the kings do the same thing, which is evil in the sight of the Lord. But uh, 
they're written in a way that just sort of records the major facts, and it's not that compelling at times. Esther's very different in that Esther is a great narrative. It's great storytelling. And it's meant to be great storytelling because kind of like the Exodus story becomes the basis for Passover, the Passover celebration, the story of Esther is the basis for the celebration of Purim. And so you want a story that people remember, people can tell, and that's fun and exciting to tell. And it very much reads that way. The book of Esther demonstrates some biblical archetypes, you know, the sort of recurring uh, character themes that show up and that are really important in Scripture. Esther is the virtuous woman. She is beautiful, but she is also respectful. She's intelligent. She's shrewd. She's courageous. The story really sort of opens with the men in charge of things making sure that they sort of assert their dominance over the women in the story, which is kind of interesting when we think about Esther being the hero of this book, the hero of this story, uh, in spite of the fact that the story begins with all the, the, the boy old boys club saying, we want to make sure they keep these women in line. Esther, with grace and character, wins over all of the power players in the story in a cultural context in which her beauty is valued and probably little else. And yet Esther manages to rise above her circumstances, ri rise above her situation, and ultimately has more influence on the outcome of the story than any of these powerful titled players in the story. Mordecai is the wise elder. He demonstrates diplomacy, discretion, and discernment. He gives wise counsel to Esther, and he carefully watches over her. Now it's not clear why Mordecai tells Esther to keep her heritage and her family a secret, but it appears that Mordecai is aware that there may be issues. There may be trouble brewing for the Jews. Haman is the despicable villain. Now, the Bible has some pretty dramatic villains in it. Haman really sort of tops the charts. He is driven exclusively by pride and greed. It seems that there is pretty much nothing he will not do in order to achieve his aims. Now, he is an Agagite, which means he's a descendant of a people that was nearly wiped out by the Israelites, and that God told the Israelites to wipe out entirely. They didn't completely follow his instructions, so part of the irony of the story is that Haman probably wouldn't exist in the story if they had followed God's instructions in the first place. But Haman, aside from that history, assume, even if we assume that he's looking generations back, and so I'm going to take my vengeance here, take this opportunity to make things right in the present, Haman is just a nasty, nasty character. Now, anyone who solves their interpersonal problems with conspiracy and murder is probably a bad guy. But one has to think that there is a special room in hell 
for the guy who decides, in order to solve my problem with Mordecai, I'm going to commit genocide. So in Haman, we have a prideful, maniacal madman bent on exterminating the Jews. Does that sound familiar? Haman is Hitler before there was a Hitler. He's that bad of a guy. He is detestable. And the driving question in the story of Esther is whether or not God is going to come show up in this situation and provide justice. And really, honestly, one of the most satisfying scenes, one of the most satisfying chapters in the whole story is when uh, Haman approaches the king about to request that Mordecai be put to death, and the king asks him this question. He says, how could I honor someone who really, really deserves to be honored? And Haman, being the arrogant idiot that he is, thinks he must be talking about me. And so he describes exactly what he would like Xerxes to do for him, what he would like the king to do for him. And then the king says, great idea. You go do that for Mordecai. And so Xerxes ends up doing unto Mordecai as he would have had done unto himself. So here's the great irony of that moment is that Haman follows the golden rule completely by accident, which is the only way someone as evil as him ever would, right? Xerxes is the useful idiot. The biblical narrative portrays Xerxes as prideful, impulsive, and basically easy to manipulate. The Xerxes of history is known as Xerxes the Great, but that is a title he pretty much gave to himself, so bear that in mind. And it's a title that his father had and his father's father had, and so basically he just assigns it to himself. He replicates a lot of things that dad did. He finishes some building projects that dad started. He essentially inherits his whole kingdom from dad. And so all of this 180 days of look how great I am is really all about work that dad did. He hasn't really earned his own place. And, and in, in fact, he is best known in history for his failed campaign into Greece. He had some early victories, but then he's rather famously turned back, spurned, and sent back home with his tail between his legs. In Esther, in the story of Esther, he is rather thick and dim-witted and oblivious. Now, collectively, Haman and Xerxes serve as a really interesting commentary on human government. But human government is quite often the ignorant and the evil having disproportionate power over the life of everyone else. So what are the lessons from Esther? That's really our focus right now. What are our lessons from Esther that we can apply to our situation today? Well, the pivotal moment in Esther is when Mordecai instructs Esther to approach the king and she says to him, she says, you, you realize, of course, that if I approach the king without 
being invited, I could be put to death. And so in Esther 4, starting with verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are, the ki- you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So the first lesson I'd like us to take from this is that sometimes, sometimes the crisis might be the opportunity. The very problem we face, the very uh, obstacle that arises might be the thing upon which God has invited us to invest our attention. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, discerning God's will is a paralyzing activity. Uh, I, I fret over it. What is it, God, that you really want me to do? I wish sometimes he would send a messenger. Maybe a, a good two-by-four to the back of the head. Just get it, make it clear. Just tell me. I'll do it. I'm willing. I'm faithful. I'm, I, I, I want to serve you. Just I, just I just need to know exactly what it is. Sometimes we get so lost in that, trying to sort it all out. And here's the reality that's presented to us in this, in this narrative, in this story, is that sometimes when things get daunting, when they're difficult, when they're dangerous, when we really want to retreat into safe spaces and wait for it all to be over, we have to entertain the possibility that that hardship, that difficulty, that danger is precisely why God has placed us where he has. That it is exactly the reason that we are here. Esther, of course, is faithful. She is brave. She responds to to what her uncle tells her, what her stepdad tells her. Uh, And she decides that she's going to approach the king, even if if it means losing her own life. She's going to do this. And so she says to him at her second banquet in Esther 7. Queen Esther answered, If you have found favor, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. But no such distress would, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. So, so here's the thing. It's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. Our culture is very busy right now about the business of redefining the meaning of things. Redefining the nature of things. You cannot count on a word that you thought you knew yesterday meaning the same thing today because we're so busy changing everything overnight. We are changing the nature of truth. We are challenging the purpose, the reason for our existence. We are redefining identity and gender and sexuality and marriage and sin. 
and virtue and morality. All of these things are a direct assault on God's order, on God's righteousness, on God's truth. They are a direct assault on the message of the Scripture. They are a direct assault on the mission of the church. And right now, in government, in corporate America, in culture, there is a mixture of ignorance and evil that combines to wield undue power and influence over the lives of the innocent. That's all happening right now. And there are some who actively and self-righteously seek to suppress, silence, and punish anyone who contradicts them, specifically targeting common sense, biblical truth for centuries. Esther shows us that a shrewd maneuver is a good response to an evil innovation. Really, this story represents times, times that, that we should be familiar with at this point, times when simply telling the truth becomes a dangerous thing. Esther is smart, and she is careful. She builds her rapport and her reputation so that she can simply reveal what should have been obvious already. More importantly, she is prepared to face her own death in order to have that opportunity. Evil innovates. Evil comes up with new ways to work. Evil changes the game plan. So we have to do the same. We have to innovate. We have to respond. Satan enjoys nothing more than the passivity of righteous people. Our public forums, our media, our social media, our schools, our government, are places right now where deception is winning the day. Ultimately, Esther's story tells us that truth outlives deception. Esther is shrewd. She takes stock of her situation. She chooses her moment. And the strength of her message is that her message is not another deception. It's not just another manipulation. She's not one of the king's yes men or one of the men whispering in his ear trying to get him to do whatever they want him to do. The strength of her message is is that it is fundamentally the truth. And the truth will out if we give it time and space and opportunity. Deception can be profound. It can be powerful. It can be daunting. But deception always crumbles. It might take a day. It might take a week. It might take years. But deception will fail and the truth will remain. Today, we are spoon-fed every day 
propaganda and bias and fear and godless social theories and moral ambiguity. And all of this is feeding into families that have already been struggling because of social and moral deterioration. And so we find ourselves raising children who have been purposely, intentionally confused by the culture so that they can't understand what is true, what is right, or even who they are. Now, the answer to all of those questions is in Jesus Christ. But those children, by and large, are not in this space to hear about it. And we, by and large, are not in their spaces to tell them about it. We have the problem and we have the solution. Somehow we just have to bring them together. Might we be here now for such a time as this? We have a a burden on us here, a burden on the shoulders of church leadership in this congregation. We want to bring the healing of the gospel. We want to bring the truth of God's word into the lives of children and their families in this community. And we have clearly come to understand that despite all of the valiant effort, it takes more than a youth night once a week to counter all that's happening in the culture. It takes a culture of mission within the church. This goes beyond programming to a place where the church shrewdly employs beauty, character, and courage to earn the opportunity to speak the truth into children's lives. We are envisioning a series of connections, of relationships, of mentors, of road trips and missions and service projects and opportunities and classes and clubs and campouts and rites of passage and even a royal ball. All of it designed to teach and model Christian salvation, Christian moral character, honor, love, and truth. My perpetual challenge, always, our perpetual challenge is how do we do all that we believe God is calling us to do without simply asking the same handful of volunteers that are already doing so much? So here's what we need. We need everyone here everyone to love kids and their families to the extent that we'll put our lives on the line to make sure that they hear the full gospel. We need to worry less about the ministry that we would like to do and worry more about the ministry that needs doing. And we need to be prepared to put all of our resources, human, financial, 
and structural and everything else on the line to make sure it happens because maybe, maybe we were put here for just such a time.